0: Hello, and welcome to Behind the Horror. Scary movie fans such as myself will hear that a movie is based on a true story. Now, a few of them we know, but most we never go on to find out just what that true story is. So in this series, we will explore and find out exactly what the true story is behind the movies we love. And before we jump in, I just want to take a moment to thank my two patrons, John T. and Amanda Newman, for their support of the podcast. I am very thankful for your contributions. And thanks to my listeners for all of your humbling and positive feedback. I hear you. Okay, so the 1975 movie, The Amityville Horror, is about the Lutz family consisting of George and Kathy Lutz, and her three children from a previous relationship, Greg, Matt, and Amy. They have purchased a large, beautiful home at a reduced price in an ideal quiet neighborhood connected to South Oyster Bay on Long Island, New York. The reason the house is so cheap is because the year before, a young man murdered his parents and siblings by shooting them with a shotgun inside the house. The new owners were happy and optimistic about their future. Kathy asks a priest to come bless the house and as he begins, he finds a room that is oddly infested with flies. He begins to feel sick and develops blisters on his hand like the stigmata. Then a disembodied voice says, get out. The priest leaves the house as fast as he can, but he does want to help the family. Very quickly, the house begins to affect both Kathy and George in strange and terrifying ways, escalating to the point that they have to make a choice. And as I always say, if you've seen the movie, you know what happens. And if you haven't, enjoy it. It's good. So this movie is based on the true story of the actual Lutz family, George, Kathy, Daniel, Missy, and Christopher Lutz. But before we get into their story, we have to start at the beginning with the DeFeo family. Ronald Joseph DeFeo Sr. was born in November of 1930 in Brooklyn, New York. His grandfather had immigrated here from Italy, and his father was the first in their family to be born in the United States. In his younger years, he was described as lean, strong, quite handsome, and had a commanding gaze. Louise Brigante was born in November of 1931 in New York, and her grandfather had also immigrated to the United States from Italy. She grew into a beautiful young lady who had dreams of becoming a model. She found some success and was even friends with the singer Mel Torme, who was super famous for that time. Now, when Ronald met Louise, he pursued her and their courtship was short. However, her parents did not approve of, quote, Big Ronnie and had nothing to do with their own daughter once she married Ronald. But after the birth of their first grandchild, Ronald Joseph DeFeo Jr. was born, they mended the ties. Butch, as they would call him, was born on September 26, 1951. It has been said that Butch didn't have the easiest childhood, that his father was very strict and had a mean temper. Discipline was doled out harshly and sometimes out of nowhere. But Ronald Sr. also wasn't afraid to hug his children and tell them that he loved them. Louise's brother once said about how Ronald treated Butch, quote, We were all sitting down in the basement watching TV and, I don't know, the boy had done something. All of a sudden, he stood up, the father, and just pushed the boy into the wall. The boy banged his head or part of his shoulder or something, unquote. As a child, Butch was very overweight, and he was bullied about it at school. The kids called him the Blob, Bucky Beaver, and Porkchop, and this made him withdraw. His sister Dawn was born when Butch was 5 years old, then Allison when he was 10, and lastly his brother Mark was born when Butch was 11. But not long after Mark was born, and for reasons not readily known, Louise decided she was going to leave Ronald. Ronald Sr. was, of course, devastated and wanted to win her back, so he co-wrote the song, quote, The Real Thing, that is on an album by jazz musician Joe Williams. Needless to say, Louise came back. In 1965, the couple had a third son they named John and were feeling a bit cramped in their Brooklyn apartment. So they looked around and they bought a beautiful home in an upper-class neighborhood of Long Island called Amityville. Amity means friendship. The house was big and luxurious and there were whispers as to how Ronald was able to afford such a property when he worked at a car dealership. But the truth really was that they had gotten help from Louise's father who owned that dealership which was a rather successful business. So the house the Dutch colonial house was 5,000 square feet three stories with a full basement and had five bedrooms three and a half baths, and was built in 1927 on Amityville Creek, just off of South Oyster Bay on Long Island. With the house came a boathouse to store a boat. There was plenty of room for the family to spread out and begin their new life. They even put a sign out in front of the house that said, High Hopes. At this point, Butch, or Ronald Jr., was now 14 years old. With Amityville being a smaller town, with a small-town feeling, the neighbors weren't particularly thrilled with the DeFeos moving in. They were the, you know, stereotypical loud family from Brooklyn, and the locals just didn't think they fit in with the uh, vibe of the town. Ronald Jr. did not have any easier time with his peers or his dominating father after the move, and he actually began physically lashing out at his father and even some of his friends. To everyone around him, it seemed obvious that he had issues. The locals stated that, quite literally, he was the town bully. One woman stated that when she'd get off the bus from school, Butch or Ronald Jr., let's call him Ronnie, he would chase her all the way home and that she was terrified of him. So his mother began taking him to a psychiatrist in hopes that they could figure out what was going on with him. But he had no interest in speaking to the doctor and insisted there was nothing wrong with him. Eventually, his parents stopped making him go to therapy and instead thought it would be a great idea to lavish their son with money and extravagant gifts. One such gift was a $14,000 speedboat, which was just an insane amount of money back then. But of course, as we all know, throwing money at a problem does nothing to solve it. By the time Ronnie was 17 years old, he was already kicked out of school for having violent outbursts at students and faculty. He was already a heavy drug user, LSD and heroin being his drugs of choice. His parents seemed oblivious or just ignored the fact that their son's behavior was getting worse. Of course, it's no wonder as his aggressive and angry attitude was just a reflection of his father's. At 18 years old, he was given a high-ranking position at his grandfather's dealership, but he wasn't really given any expectations for the job. His father also paid him a wage, whether or not Ronnie even bothered to show up to work. So the money that Ronnie made went into guns, alcohol and drugs and yet his parents bought him a new car. This of course only rewarded his concerned parents with increasingly strange behavior. One such instance was when he got into an argument with one of his friends and subsequently threatened to shoot that friend with a hunting rifle that Ronnie had had with him then the very next day he acted as though nothing had happened another instance was when his parents began arguing as they often did and ronnie pulled out a 12-gauge shotgun he pointed it at his father at point-blank range and he pulled the trigger thankfully the gun malfunctioned but it scared his father so completely that the argument was immediately over and nothing further was said about the incident. So by 1974, 23-year-old Ronnie was feeling angry due to his belief that he wasn't making enough money at the dealership and the money that his father gave him, which was ample. He began trying to think of ways to embezzle money from the business. By late October, he was given around $20,000 to take to the bank and deposit into the business's account. But instead, Ronald and a friend took the money and claimed to have been robbed. The police were called, and as they interviewed Ronald, he became belligerent and angry. And this, of course, made the police very suspicious, and they asked him to come to the police station to look at some mugshots, to which Ronnie refused. So his father tried to carefully talk to Ronnie about his lack of cooperation with the police and was met with a direct death threat. So a couple of weeks later on November 13th, 1974 Ronald got up and was at the car dealership by 6 a.m., much to the surprise of everyone there. He attempted to call his father to find out why he hadn't shown up to work yet, but got no answer. Business was slow, and so he decided to take off work early and went to a friend's house to hang out for a couple of hours. He then went shopping at a local mall. He also bought some heroin. He shot up. Relaxed, Then as the evening turned into early night, he went to the local bar just down the street from his family's home. It was at this time that he tried to call his family at home several times. And after not getting an answer, he told a buddy at the bar that he was going to go home and check on them. He quickly came back to the bar and shouted, quote, My mother and father are dead. Unquote. So some of the people got into cars, they drove down to the house, they went inside and discovered that the entire DeFeo family was dead. Ronald Sr. Louise. And all of Ronald's younger siblings had been shot dead with a 35 caliber Marlin rifle while they were sleeping. So ultimately, here's what we believe happened. Ronald had gotten out of bed very early that morning, got the rifle from his secret stash of guns. He went into his parents' room and shot both of them dead. He then went into his brother's room and shot both of them in their beds. He then went into his sister's room and shot them both point blank while they slept. And interesting, all of the family members had been laying face down with their arms up. So then Ronald got into the shower. He got ready for work. He took the bloodied clothes that he had been wearing as well as the gun and put them in a pillowcase, which he then stashed in a storm drain on his way to work, arriving there at 6 a.m. The phone calls he made home were his attempt at setting up an alibi. So when the police arrived on the scene, they questioned him about who he thought might have murdered his family. He told them that a mafia hitman most likely did it, stating there was an old grudge between the hitman and his father over some work at the dealership. He stated he had not been able to sleep the night before, which is why he had gotten up and left for work so early, absolutely sure that his family had been alive and slumbering peacefully when he left. But after investigating the scene, it was very apparent that the family had been murdered by, by Ronald DeFeo Jr. When asked again, he changed his story. But finally, they were able to break down his defenses, and he did confess. He said, quote, Once I started, I just couldn't stop. I went so fast, unquote. His trial began on October 14, 1975, nearly a year after, where his defense was that he had heard a voice tell him to murder his family, you know, the devil made me do it kind of thing, and a psychologist testified that he was neurotic and dissociative. But another said he had antisocial personality disorder, making him quite aware that of what he had done, but motivated by selfishness. The next month, he was found guilty on all counts and was given six consecutive life sentences. And every single appeal has been turned down. And folks, that's just the first half of the story. So Ronnie killed his entire family on November 13, 1974. And then just over a year later... On December 19, 1975, the Lutz family moved in. This is also only a couple of months after Ronald was found guilty. So let's get into the Lutz's backstory. Kathleen Connors was born on October 13, 1946, in Massachusetts. She grew up and married a man named Sebastian Queretino and had three children. Daniel, Christopher, and Missy. At some point, the couple divorced, but Sebastian still saw his children regularly on Sundays, even after she met and married George Lutz, who insisted that he adopt the children and give them his last name. George was born on January first, 1947, in Long Island. He was a land surveyor by trade, And when he and Kathy got married, they decided to look for a home when they found out about the Amityville house. It was for sale for only $80,000. For an additional $400, the DeFeo's furniture would be left in the house as it had been since they were murdered. Wrap that around your mind. But this was an incredible price for such a large house in such a great neighborhood, never mind that six people had been shot in cold blood. They knew well of the murders that had happened in the house, but the price was just too tempting, so they bought it. George and Kathy moved into the house again on December nineteenth, 1975, along with the children, Daniel, nine years old. Christopher, who was seven, and Melissa, or Missy, who was five, and also their lab breed dog, they named Harry. And though George labeled himself as a non-practicing Methodist, Kathy was Catholic and asked her priest to come and bless the house, and the priest agreed. George later stated that the priest did in fact come and bless the house, and he also encountered an alarming number of flies in the house considering it was winter, but insisted that they did not swarm the priest as they show in the movie. So, the chronological order of exactly what happened isn't really spelled out, other than what the book says, of course, but rather than just reading you the book, here is a high-level view of what the family, mostly from the testimony of George and Kathy, said they endured after moving into the house. And as a side note, Kathy's two sons would later go on to say that George was heavily into and extremely interested in the occult. Okay, here we go. George himself said that he began to wake up every morning promptly at 3.15 a.m. This was also around the time that Ronnie would have murdered his family. George also said that when he woke up at this time, he felt compelled to go outside and check the boathouse. Again, they moved in during the winter, and yet they all stated the house was completely infested with swarms of flies. Kathy began having horrible nightmares about the DeFeo murders and stated her whole family began sleeping face down, which was not normal for any of them. Kathy also stated she experienced the sensation of being touched and held in a loving way by some, quote, unseen force. George, while working in the basement, found a small hidden room that was supposedly not on any of the blueprints. He stated the room was painted red and that their dog, Harry, wanted no part of that room. As the family moved around inside the house... They stated they felt odd, random cold spots, as well as being able to smell perfume that no one wore, or human feces not anywhere near the bathroom. Both George and Kathy stated they saw the face of a demon with half of its head, quote, blown out and was burned into the soot of their fireplace. Their young daughter Missy began a friendship with her imaginary friend, she called Jody, who was described as a demon pig like shape whose eyes glowed red. George said he would also wake up to the sound of the front door of the house slamming open and shut, or what sounded like a marching band tuning their instruments together and also what he described as a clock radio not quite tuned to a channel properly. But when he would get up and he would go downstairs, he claimed the sounds would stop. While Kathy was sleeping one evening, she later described seeing red welts across her chest, seemingly caused from nothing, and also levitated about two feet above her bed. Family members observed what looked like large hoof prints in the snow outside of their house. George reported that he always felt very cold and felt compelled to chop wood to keep a fire going when everyone else in the house said it was perfectly comfortable. He also stated he felt that his personality was changing, that he had become verbally aggressive and also began to feel constantly sick, and he lost weight rapidly. Kathy stated she witnessed about a foot-tall crucifix that hung in the living room completely spin itself until it was upside down, followed by a horrible smell that seemed to emanate from it. George said he found bite marks on his ankles and watched as he visually saw Kathy's face change from her youthful beauty, beginning to change into what he described as a 90-year-old woman, he said, quote, The hair wild and shocking white, the face a mass of wrinkles and ugly lines, and saliva dripping from a toothless mouth, unquote. The room Kathy had designated as her sewing room was the room that the priest who attempted to bless the house told the family to stay out of. In this room, Kathy would hear the window opening and closing, but no one would be in there to do it. They also stated that a green slime-type substance would ooze out of and run down the walls in a particular hallway, as well as seeping from the keyhole of the door to the playroom they put together in the attic for the children. So all of these things occurred between the time of when they moved in, again, December 19th, and by January 8th, not even a month later, George and Kathy decided to try to bless the house themselves. While George held up a crucifix, they both recited the Lord's Prayer, which starts with quote, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, unquote, you know, you know, we've all heard it. George said that once they reached the living room, he heard a bunch of voices all in unison say, quote, Will you stop? Unquote. This didn't seem to be successful, so on January 14th, 28 days after they moved in, George and Kathy decided to try to bless the house once more. Now, unfortunately they would never elaborate on exactly what happened during that blessing because they stated it was just, quote, too frightening to talk about. So they packed the kids up, they fled from the house and went to Kathy's mother's house, though they stated whatever was in that house had followed them. And they left behind everything they owned in that house. They just abandoned it. And then the next day, they sent a mover to collect their belongings from the house. And the mover stated that he did not experience any paranormal activity while in the house whatsoever. George began looking into finding ways to have the house investigated for paranormal activity. He had parapsychologists visit the house to see what they could possibly find. George and Kathy both attended a press conference about their ordeal and they also hired a lawyer who just so happened to be the same lawyer that had defended Ronald DeFeo Jr. during his trial. The couple appeared on television shows but most people began to feel like the whole story was a hoax. They took recordings of themselves speaking about what had happened to them in the house and they submitted those tapes to author Jay Anson, who ultimately wrote the book called, The Amityville Horror, A True Story. George and Kathy went on to have two more children together, but ultimately divorced. Kathy died in August of 2004 from emphysema. And George died in May 2006 of heart disease. Now, there is a lot of controversy over this whole situation. A lot and so much information about it. But that might be for a future podcast. Thanks for listening. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.